Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, welcome into this week's episode of the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast. I'm the host, Scott Agnes. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or on Stitcher. On each of those, you can listen back to previous episodes, like my conversation with Quinn Buckner, with Pacers VP Todd Taylor about the Hickory uniforms, or with new Mad Ants general manager Brian Levy. Well, today I'll be talking with Jeremiah Johnson. You can see him on the game broadcast for every single Pacers game as he's the pregame, halftime, and postgame host, along with the sideline reporter. And what's special about this season is for the first time ever, Fox Sports Indiana is broadcasting every single regular season Pacers game, all 82 games. So on game nights, there's no need to look anywhere else. Jeremiah moved over to Fox Sports Indiana three years ago after nearly a decade as a sports anchor and reporter here in Indianapolis with Fox 59. To start out, JJ, can you explain to fans and viewers out there what a game day is like for you? What goes into each broadcast and what kind of prep work does your job require? I really think of each game, as long as it's not a back-to-back, as sort of a two-day process. You know, every day before a game, there'll be a conversation with uh, our pregame producer, Ken Softman, as well as our game producer, Max Leinwand, about storylines and things we're sort of looking at. Um, it's more of a, a research day a little bit, and if there's a practice to go to, then go to practice and, and get some interviews and, and talk to some guys even off camera. Uh, just to get an idea about things they're looking at, things they've been uh, successful with, things they're trying to improve on. Um, so initially, the day before a game is some, some, you know, laying the groundwork just a little bit. But then a game day is pretty much from the time we're waking up, it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, beginning <laughs> yeah. uh, writing scripts, sort of looking at the rundowns, deciding angles and storylines, and then attending shoot-around. Um, in the afternoon, it's, it's pretty much continuing to write a little bit um, because the pregame show is such where it's not – there is no teleprompter on the show, and it's not – really word-for-word writing, but I go ahead and I sort of write the show um, just so I have an idea of what I want to do, but it's definitely not a word-for-word reading of a a teleprompter or anything like that. So it just keeps me, uh, I kind of go through the show that way and write it like I would if I was at the TV station, but then when it's time to actually execute, um, those are just really notes to have uh, just to, you know, if there are certain specific statistics or records or things that I want to make sure that I'm able to get in, that I've got them jotted down a little bit. So, um, But back to just the morning, it's, it's going to shoot around, doing some interviews after shoot around. Um, leading into a game, we would usually have a pregame dinner meeting around 4.45 or so in the meal room, either at Banker's Life Fieldhouse or on the road, and that sort of is a lot, it allows the folks that have been in the truck from about 1 o'clock on to, to take a break and eat and then have them talk with us about anything additionally that they're planning for the night. And then once uh, Frank Vogel's pregame media availability is usually 90 minutes before tip-off or um, 105 minutes before tip-off for a home game, and that's pretty much from that point on. It's nonstop until uh, the postgame show concludes. So 
it is a long day, but it's a fun day, and it sure beats working for a living. Yeah, there's no question about that. During those those meetings with the crew uh, over dinner, what are the biggest things that the on-air talent take out of those? Is it kind of the graphics that you may do, or the producer chimes in, we need to hit this storyline? For example, a couple days ago, you whether it's uh, Roy Hibbert facing his former team, Kobe retiring, those different storylines. What exactly goes on during those meetings from your standpoint? Well, everyone has a little bit of a different role in those meetings. For me, it's just a chance to have uh, a good 10 minutes or so with Ken because the pregame show is different than really once the ball is tipped. That's sort of live, reactionary television. But that pregame show is pretty well scripted, and everything that is said um, is said for a reason and fits along with a graphic or a piece of video. So while there were times in my previous job at Fox 59 where we would conduct interviews and sometimes I'd have a four or five minute interview segment planned and I would pretty much ask anything I wanted to um, within reason. I knew there were a few topics that I wanted to get to, but this I pretty much am asking questions that fit along with the storyline and with the, the video or the graphics that accompany it. So I just need to make sure that we're on the same page, that what I've sort of planned is the same thing that he has, that Ken has put together in the afternoon in the truck. And inevitably there is always going to be something that either didn't get done or <laughs> technology of course. issue in the truck where, let's say, they couldn't find video of a certain flashback we were trying to talk about or there was just an issue and we're going to drop that and make sure to not do that. So that's our final chance to go through the show pretty much from start to finish and it only takes about five to ten minutes but we just go through it along with for home games like jonathan bender or stephanie white would sit there as well so they're aware and then for home for away games chris denary does a segment quinn does a segment and so they they have a one last chance but but they're just reacting to questions so in a way it's important for them to know a little bit what we're talking about but in the nature that you'd like the show to be um, spontaneous, you don't have to necessarily tell Quinn everything you're going to talk about and the way you're going to talk about it because he's reacting to the questions. So it's more of a chance for me to, to talk with Ken and then with Max, the segment that's always on just prior to tip-off, I'll let you guys behind the curtain just a little bit. That's always pre-taped uh, because of the national anthem on the court. We never would like, never do any segments during the national anthem and we can't be on the court at that time as well. So that's the segment that I would discuss with Max of at some point prior to the pregame show starting. We would tape that segment. Um, we can on home games actually have that segment live because we are out in the Fox loft occasionally. So, But definitely for road games, that's usually a segment where we're back in the hallway and, and Quinn and I are probably talking about one last um, important nugget uh, about the game. And, for instance, the plan for tonight um, as we tape this on Wednesday is to take a closer look at Monte Ellis and some of his leadership roles um, that he's been able to bring to the team. So that'll be something that we would tape about 45 minutes before the pregame show starts, and then it's all ready to go as a segment uh, when it airs just prior to tip-off. And then I would just discuss with Max. I usually give Max a, one or two sheets of paper with four, five, six different in-game hits that can be used if he wants them, if it fits with the storyline of the game, um, just things that I've prepared and looked up. But inevitably about half of those get used and half of those are you know, something that was good that we could have used, but we save them for another night or we just move on without them. So it's just basically, at that point, almost all of the work has been done. It's just making sure everybody's on the same page. And, and for the guys in the truck, a chance to get some nourishment. I never really eat before a show because at the time we have the dinner meeting, it's pretty much five minutes later, it's go time, and I just 
it's not that fun to really work on a full stomach, and I, you know, hate to get something on my. Yeah, I was gonna say you don't want that mustard on that nice dapper jacket that you've been wearing. Yeah, that last point that you made, I thought was was very good too. So much of the work you do, much of it isn't seen because you have to be prepared for the unexpected, or uh, you know, if it's a blowout, maybe the end of bench guy, and you talked with a guy a couple days ago, for instance. It's like. I talked with Denary in his stat sheet. It's like 80% of the work he does for that sheet never gets used, but there's those that 5% or 1% chance that he may use that nugget, and so it's always good to have those, those notes prepped and be prepared for the unexpected. And as we prepared for the Lakers game, you know, two weeks out, it was, you know, I'm wondering if we can talk to Roy Hibbert. I wonder if he's going to say anything. There will be flashbacks. There will be commentaries. There will be things that we will, you know, try to get in in the broadcast about Roy and how he's doing with the Lakers and what he thought about his time with the Pacers. Now, there are two issues with that. Roy wasn't really that interested in in reflecting prior to the game. And at the time, uh, Candace Buckner and I and a couple other reporters actually did spend a little bit of time with him during the pregame media availability. Um, I got a enough that I could share, but as the night went on and it was Kobe Knight and it was Paul George, it didn't really fit that well into the broadcast. And then there was another situation where, you know, I talked with Paul's parents at the end of the third quarter who were sitting two or three rows behind the bench and had a good little uh, piece of information about Paul being able to go home and have a Thanksgiving uh, meal a few days after Thanksgiving. But I expected the margin to be double digits in the fourth quarter and it would have fit in nicely and with the game so competitive it just didn't really fit so you know we had we always have some good information that we 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 don't get to share maybe i guess we should should use twitter for that where after the game's over i could chime in and say well what i didn't get to tell you was this but Mm -hmm. um, all in all uh there's always a lot of information and as you said when i'm just focused on the pacers some of it just comes naturally. It's things you observe a week or two out that's, you know, it's still with you, and you, you know, you don't forget about that. And by not focusing on, you know, IU or Purdue or Butler or the Colts, you know, this is our life pretty much. So it's easy to kind of, you know, maintain and soak in different things and have them ready at different times. I'm curious, how do you view that job? Is it number one, reporting what you see as far as perhaps an injury report or something going on within the huddle? Or is it more just adding to the broadcast and also providing little tidbits that you've observed or maybe talked about with someone else uh, throughout the building? What, What do you see as your number one job during a game as the sideline reporter? Well, it's funny because it's probably the part of the, of my job that more people see than any, but um, requires probably the less the less prep and is probably the one that's hardest to get right, in my opinion, because so much of the prep goes into that 30-minute pregame. But, you know, we have to be honest with ourselves. Not everybody is tuning in that much before tip-off, and the, those that watch on League Pass uh, can't get the pregame show, so they only see what happens during the course of the game. I feel like it's a delicate balance that I'm still working with in terms of when you have a different producer and when you have a different, um, you know, the games are closer than you kind of have to back up, back off your feature storylines and more of what's actually happening during the course of the game. But um, to answer your question, I think the most important thing is to um, be able to interject a couple of stories that maybe Chris or Quinn aren't aware of or things that I saw at practice. And, you know, shoot-arounds I think are really good because I am able to go in to watch the shoot around and I can usually get an idea of you know what's the game plan what are the things that Frank Vogel is emphasizing prior to that game and I think those are good things to share um, with the viewers without giving away any company secrets so I really try to get in you know enough that I'm adding to the broadcast but not I don't want to ever be overbearing and feel like you know 
okay, we don't need to hear from the sideline guy anymore. So um, I think it's just a delicate balance. Obviously, the injury reporting is, is an important part, but we're only at liberty of what the team provides. And I will say professional sports is much easier to do that <laughs> yes. part of the job than college because I did work one IU football game this year, and I worked one IU football game last year. And, and there is no rules about injury reporting. Someone leaves and goes to the locker room, and pretty much every coach has the philosophy of not saying anything. While the viewers want the sideline reporter to find out, you know, you can't speculate on anything, so you can only go by what you see. So at least in the NBA, there is a, a process in place where as soon as someone goes to the locker room, the PR director on hand goes, finds out, gets the report, and, and gives it to me. So it's not very hard to do that part of the job, but maybe that is the one that, that is most of interest to the viewer. When you're doing college football for Big Ten Network, what is the route you go then? Can you talk with the trainer, or do they allow that? Is there a secondary PR guy that's not up in the press box that you try to poke him for some kind of info? What's the route you've learned to take? <laughs> well, I've only done two of those broadcasts, and at, at both times it wasn't my full-time job and my position where uh, you know, I had as much experience. And I, you know, Given that I was working for the Big Ten Network and the Big Ten is part of the teams, maybe different than an ESPN broadcast, mm-hmm. I tended to not want to push it too much because if you go to the team and they're not going to tell you, then are they going to be mad because you found something else out? Now, you know, at Indiana, there are a few different people that I knew on the sidelines that I could try to talk to, but they're still, you know, cautious of uh, privacy regulations and different things like that. So I'll be honest, it's not great. Uh, this is a kind of an interesting story because during that IU Rutgers game, their star receiver, uh, Leonte Carew, I think it was, uh, went out with an injury. And he didn't. He went back to the locker room. He had two or three touchdowns in the game. It was a big story. And so finally he came back onto the field with a walking boot. And the PR director, <laughs> while he was an extremely nice, nice guy, he comes to me and he says, I'd rather you not say that he's in a walking boot. What? <laughs> I said, well, I mean, it's pretty no. obvious. They're going to show him. <laughs> he's like, well, I'd rather you not say it. <laughs> I mean, it's straightforward. You have to do request, your job. And that's just shows you a little bit of what sometimes we're faced with, um, especially on the college level. But it is much different in, in professional. And um, while the teams are going to likely be more generic in nature, when Miles Turner left um, in the Celtics game, he was questionable to return. Um, but then at the end of the, you know, to start the third quarter, it was that he was ruled out. And they had not really clarified his injury. But I'm not sure at that point they really knew. And then it came out, you know, later that it was a, a fracture, not just a sprain. So, Um, You're going to tend to always get a cautious response, but at least you're going to get an idea of the severity as quickly as possible. Um, But it's tough on the college level. Jeremiah, you attended Ball State, so I would assume you always had intentions to go the broadcast route. What were your career thought plans for for maybe post-graduation from starting high school, college? Was it always broadcasting? Yeah, actually it was, because uh, in high school, at Peru High School, we had a television station, and we had a lot of, uh, while the technology may not have been um, top-notch, we had quite a bit of resources, and we had a local access channel that basically a group of about five or six of us had sort of free reign to to make programs, and we had one show that was sort of part of our class, and we would also sometimes make additional shows, and we would sometimes we would just go to games and while we didn't always have a full, you know, three or four camera setup, we did occasionally, but sometimes we would just have one camera plug in two microphones and have one person uh, shooting it and, and the other two people uh, broadcasting. And I did that with volleyball and girls basketball because I was playing other sports.
sports. So it was sort of always what I wanted to do. I grew up, Peru was a unique place because the, the local affiliates for the news, we could get all of the Indianapolis stations, but we also were able to get one Fort Wayne station, the Lafayette station, and one South Bend station. So I got to see a variety of, of news, and I was kind of always that guy who was or that even in like high school where I was flipping around to see what shows or what stories the local sportscasters were doing. And that was pretty much my goal was always to be a, uh, a sports director in Indianapolis was hmm. honestly was my, my number one goal. And I pretty much got close to that. I was not the sports director at Fox 59, but I got to do about everything that, that that would, that job would entail. And I enjoyed it. But at some point in the local news, I kind of was looking for different things and a way to maybe get in with a team or an organization to just sort of specialize a little bit, and, and that's kind of why I went that route with the, the pregame producer job. There's something special on both sides. TV, sports, there's always something different. You may be at a, a North Central basketball game one night, and then it's Colts, Pacers, what have you. Whereas Pacers, you're immersed in the team where you basically know everything that goes on. Is there a preference on one of those? Yeah, I mean, I had a blast. uh with my previous job and in three different markets being immersed in everything that is local sports and like you said going to maybe a high school football practice one day and a Colts game the next and and covering a team in the NCAA tournament I mean those are certainly some of the highlights and I would say that most people have to start that route whether they would want to or not because of the experience that you can get and the reps you can get in terms of you know doing live shots and and just getting comfortable on the air because there are 218 220 TV markets in the United States and each of those has you know at least two maybe three stations so that's think about that that many jobs and then think about how many NBA teams there are and at the same time think about football there's only 16 games, so they're all network broadcast, so you, you throw those out of the mix. You have basically baseball, basketball, and hockey to be able to do this job at this level as a, as a basically a full-time job. So while I could say at any point I would have chosen this, I would have never been able to get to this point without the experience in local news, but now that I've done both, I will say that this is the best job I've ever had, and I'll keep it as long as I can, and not sure that I'll ever have one better. <laughs> I know your family loves it. I'll touch on that here in a second. I can't go past college without bringing up, I don't know if it's little-known fact anymore, but you were Charlie Cardinal, the mascot at Ball State. I don't know how long. How did you get into that, and what was that experience like? Something unique, and i got to believe from the resume, the first couple, that was on there, because that's one of those things. I've had interviews, and they won't even talk about some of my experiences. They'll talk about being a Pacer ball boy and what that was like. This is, I think, one of your interesting nuggets that you'd have on your resume. No, that's true, and it was not planned and just sort of a spontaneous thing where I went to Ball State with a couple of ideas and intentions, having played three sports in high school and you know knowing that I wanted to be involved in the television department as much as I could, but I don't I never believed in college you should just you know spend all of your time doing one thing. So I sort of went to Ball State with the thought that maybe I could walk on the, the baseball team and there was an initial one-day tryout situation that, um, you know, the odds were really stacked against me in that situation and, and didn't happen. And so it was sort of like regroup time, maybe the second month of the school year, and saw an ad in the, 
in the Ball State Daily News, and I said, well, you know, that'd be fun to try out for. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I never thought of myself as a mascot, and obviously I was playing sports at all times. So went to the, the initial meeting, and there were probably 12 to 15 mascots, and they were only looking for one, maybe two. And basically I fit the costume pretty well and, and had a pretty good audition where I had some creativity. And <laughs> next thing you know, I was one of the Charlie Cardinals. So that was pretty fun, But the and it did come up in many of my initial uh, job interviews. I had actually an interview at ESPN when I was just coming out of college, and it was for a sort of a network operations coordinator was the was the position. And but it was kind of like a master control operator, someone that would kind of monitor the feeds and do different things in the control room. And and that was that combined with at the same time that I was Charlie Cardinal, I was a walk on on the football team, and I had to balance all of those different activities. Uh, they were kind of fascinated by, and it it was some good stories to tell. Um, and I did it through four years as well. So, um, in a way, it was it was performance, which is kind of what my job is now is to perform. But you could perform while no one really knew who you were. Uh, so that was kind of fun as well. But uh, nothing that I'll probably ever get back to. But <laughs> yeah, it was it was enjoyable. <laughs> two two follow ups on this. How hot is being in one of those costumes? And also, what's the best thing about doing that? Is it just being able to act crazy and no one has any idea who it is? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm someone who is always going to games on a you know even at, in college I on a Tuesday night if uh, the Marion Giants had a big game we would drive to Marion and go watch the game so I always like being at the games and being a part of the experience and so uh, you know to, to get people fired up I, it wasn't all about the hijinks part of it um, but it was a good uh, weight loss program as well because it was extremely hot inside the costume. And I probably, if I weighed myself before and after, it was usually about 10 pounds of difference from oh, <laughs> before the game. Seriously. And, the game. And, and that is one of the things, if you're a good mascot, you're not, you're never just standing watching the game, really, because at any point, anyone could be <laughs> could be looking at you and watching you, so you always have to be uh, doing something and exaggerating all your movements. But uh, uh, it was it was a good time. Could you do flips or, or anything, <laughs> you, anything like this? I'm having a, I'm having a difficult time picturing this. Well, Charlie Cardinal has a little bit of different costume now than he did then, um, and it's more of a, at the time I wore it, it was a pretty full costume, and that's why I fit it pretty well, because I was taller, mm-hmm. but it was it's not Boomer. I mean, it's more of a, a little bit of a clumsy, clumsy mascot, and there were no flips. <laughs> it would be impossible. A, I couldn't do a flip without a costume on, and B, the, the head and such was, um, and the feet. No, oh, it would have fallen no, off. It didn't lend itself to doing those kind of tricks. So I, I specialized in half-court shooting and knocked down a, a few of those uh, during the course of uh, timeouts and halftime shows um, and, and would regularly uh, perform outside the three-point arc, knock down jumpers, and the crowd seemed to enjoy that. Want to go now to how your current job affects family life? Because you got two little ones at home, a great wife, and you're away very often. For instance, this week, at least seven days here during a four game road trip out west. You're away from your kids here. How do you make it work? Is it a lot of FaceTimes, a lot of phone calls? How have you kind of made it work here over the last three years? Well, you know, to be honest, just like the local news was good training for. Um, this position in terms of the work, it also in a way was good training for um, the family part of it because while the, there was not as much travel involved with lo- working at the TV station with the exception of you know those March runs covering Butler in the tournament or maybe a, you know once or twice a month for a Colts weekend game, um, it still involved a lot of nights and weekends 
you know, away from home. So I guess that's where it's a little bit worse during the season in that worse, and I only mean that from just the perspective of being away from home. Um, during the season, there are more road trips and there are more time away. When there's not a game and we and the Pacers are home, if I go to practice, I'm still able to do a lot of the work and the prep work for the game at home, maybe after the kids go to bed. And those are nights where five nights out of the seven. Um, in my previous job, I was not at the TV station. And if we had news until 7 o'clock, there was really not time to get home for dinner and come back home. So, And then there was always work to do after you know, the broadcast and updating the Internet and all those things. So... It is more time away from home, but it's really better, in my opinion, um, than what I had in, in the previous job. So, obviously, the most important thing is, you know, my wife does a great job with balancing everything when I'm not home and taking care of the kids, and she, she works as well. So, we have help from our parents, uh, both close enough to be able to help with the kids. And, and, you know, talking on the phone and FaceTiming is important, but they don't know anything different. I mean, Preston knows a little bit different. He's seven because of the TV station, but I think that he likes the summers of Daddy being home a lot more than than I ever used to be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The big picture, basically, of um, it's six months a year it's really busy. The other six months a year I do work, but I don't work, um, you know, nine to five, 40 hours a week or two to midnight, 40 hours a week or 60 hours a week. I'm I'm home quite a bit and able to do a lot of things that, that a lot of other dads aren't. And when you do travel with the Pacers, like you are right now in L.A., it's first class all the way, private jet for one. <laughs> uh, yeah, there are Delta, uh, you know, it's a charter plane, that a service that um, the, same, the same service that I would say all but three or four teams use. So um, it is great travel, good hotels, and uh, <laughs> no waiting in terminals for possibly canceled flights or layovers or anything like that so it definitely makes it makes the travel good and that's where as long as it's not a multi-game road trip we would always be coming home immediately after a game so while i would be gone all day and night i'm actually waking up and i'm there you know the next morning helping the kids get ready for school so that that's a benefit as well so um it's as good as it can be from having to be 41 games away from home um, the NBA folks do it right, and they obviously want the players and the coaches to get as much rest and as much time at home as they can. And then when they're away from home, the accommodation's as good as they can be, and the TV crew just happens to be along for the ride. <laughs> All right, let's talk some hoops now, and we'll start out where you are right now in L.A. You talked a little bit earlier about trying to talk with Roy Hibbert. A, why do you think he's still trying to avoid the topic, and B, did he really say anything of note? Because I, I was surprised. I didn't read any stories, hear anything, really no tweets or anything either. I saw an L.A. Times story the day before, but really that story got lost in the fold because of Kobe announcing his retirement at the end of the year, J.J. Yeah, you know, it's kind of similar it, on the road and from a Pacer perspective. There was really, you know, Candace and I, and Candace maybe had bigger intentions to, you know, feature Roy or spotlight Roy, but when Paul goes for 39 and Kobe retires uh, or announces his retirement and, and Roy had a what I would say is basically a typical Roy game right now. I mean, he basically, I don't know what his stat line off the top of my head was, but it wasn't real impressive. He wasn't on the court in the fourth quarter, and that's sort of where his career is right now. Now, he wasn't, he was the same Roy I felt like in terms of answering questions as kind of we saw the last couple of years. He okay. Just, 
he just changed. I mean, he's just not, that's not his thing anymore. And it used to be when he was two or first two or three years in the league, I mean, you know, he was, you know, gave great interviews, was into to doing that, and it's just not, <laughs> it's just not his thing anymore. And I feel like, um, and not trying to put words in his mouth, but I think maybe he just, Feels like he got burned at some point from being too honest and isn't interested in, in reflecting. And um, you could tell when that game started, he was pretty fired up and he wanted to prove a point. But I would also say, kind of, I'm not sure he's a perfect fit with that team. And that team has a lot of odd pieces as well. <laughs> very, very odd. Feels sort of like a one year, a one year situation for Roy. But at some point, he's going to have to uh, prove his worth in, in a league that's changing quite a bit convince someone else to bring him on and and see if he can be a better fit but i didn't see much i didn't see many uh of the guys talking before the game and that sometimes is what you'll see because before games sometimes guys are are locked in and they don't want to be all uh chumming it up before a game usually you see it after the game but with everything that was going on a close game down to the wire Reggie Miller sitting courtside, PG. I mean, everything that was happening, I think Roy just kind of slipped out, and there was no, mm-hmm. there was no love fest after the game either. So they had said, I think uh, Paul had said that he was planning to have dinner or see Roy after the game. He said that during shoot-around. Uh, not for sure if that ever ended up happening. Yeah, that obviously got lost in the fold a little bit, especially with Kobe. I know the Fox Sports Indiana cameras focused on Kobe shaking up with countless pacers, as it should. But doing so, us at home, we're unable to see if Roy talked with anyone. I'm guessing he handled it privately with Tex and everything. Now let's move to Kobe here. What was that whole experience like, the atmosphere at the Staples Center with this big announcement for one of their best players of all time and the letter given out? And did you get any of those letters I can take off your hands for a little eBay action? <laughs> well, it was interesting about 3 o'clock seeing the tweets and saying, oh, well, our storylines just changed quite a bit and knowing, you know, scrambling a little bit to determine the best way that we were going to cover that with the resources that we had, knowing that we weren't, it's not a Lakers broadcast, so you have to still um, understand that it's a Pacers show, but the, the date that it happened made it a big story um, for our show. Um, it was It was pretty cool to watch. I mean, Last year, I think Kobe's last game-winning shot was against the Pacers. So we've seen, over the last few years even, we've seen flashes of the old Kobe. But uh, the way that game started, the Lakers were 2-for-25. And you realize why that team needs to start over and why Kobe (laughs) really needed to announce his retirement. Because now the storyline throughout the rest of the season is going to be one where people are just... Giving paying tribute to Kobe, looking back on his career finally, and not saying, you know, what's wrong with his shooting and that kind of thing. So, um, what made it fascinating to me was just the way that fourth quarter transpired. Even though it was a double-digit Pacers lead, and and then Nick Young just started going out of his mind, and Kobe had already left the game for what looked like the last time, and then he came back in, and so it made those last couple minutes. If if folks back in Indiana were able to stay awake for it or didn't give up on the game, um, it was it was pretty fun to watch. And the fact that Kobe was, you know, locked up with Paul, and then Kobe hit a big three, and Ron Artest hit a three, um, and then it was all set up for, uh, oh no, surely Kobe's not going to do this, and then he had an air ball at the end. So it's one of the great things about sports you don't, you never know what's going to happen, and I couldn't have, you couldn't have imagined a script going the way it did, and it was just, it was great to be a part of it. And yes, I did get one of the Kobe letters um, from one of the PR folks, and so I really appreciate them for that. 
And I have not put it on eBay. I think that would violate some journalism ethic rules. Sure, I sure. I'm going for uh, three or four hundred dollars, which I was shocked at. Oh uh, yeah, I saw them starting at five hundred and going past a grand, which is outrageous to me. I'll make a photocopy and eat, happily give people one. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they've already gone down though. If you would, if you oh, okay. strike while the iron was hot, next week they're going to be about fifty bucks. So I'll probably just end up keeping it. That's, as you said, I thought it was kind of fitting how how Kobe hit a big shot there. I think drew him within a, a basket. The next shot kind of put him in his place, and as he fell back to reality, airballing a three. It's basically where he's at. He's going to hit a couple, but he's going to miss a ton more than he's going to make at this stage of his career. Yeah, I did think it was interesting as well. We talked about guys chumming it up and talking before the game. I thought it was interesting how much smiling and talking Kobe uh, was doing during the game. I mean, with Paul and um, with Quinn, I mean, he hugged him before the game, and he was basically at times during timeouts talking to Quinn uh, before the, the cameras came back on. Uh, so it's it's a little bit interesting, and I suppose it's easier to be that way from a Lakers perspective when there seems to be no chance that this is a playoff season. This is not a team that is really contending for meaningful games. It almost seems like at this point the Lakers are basically Kobe's show right now, and they're going to, whatever happens, whether they win or lose or whatever percentage they shoot, it doesn't seem like it really matters, which is why the Pacers had to do whatever it takes it took to win that game. And I know that Frank Vogel and company would have liked it not to have been as close, um, but the main thing was just to get out of there with a win and not not get a loss against a team like the Lakers. Well, the Pacers just pulled off one of their best months in franchise history, going 11-2 and after losing their first three games. Those were all in October. Arguably the second hottest team really in the league behind Golden State, who's won all 19 of their games. The Pacers have won five straight. I don't think any of us predicted them going off like this starting the season. I think we all thought they'd be good and in the playoffs, but I don't think we foresaw this happening at all, did we? Uh, I don't think so. I was probably as optimistic as anyone and when asked um, before the season thought that the realistic maybe ceiling for this team could try to be maybe compete for that four or five seed and if you're not going to be uh, beating Cleveland for you know the number one spot in the central and while the division um, the division isn't necessarily a barometer anymore um, you know you had to look at at Chicago and Toronto and Atlanta and say well you know, if they could get to the fourth or the fifth seed, I mean, what a successful season that would be. And that could still be the case because, you know, it, where, where the season is right now, 16 games in, a long way to go. Um, but now I would say the sky's the limit because this team is playing well together. They're having fun. They have confidence. They have the ability to go on, you know, 15 to 2 runs uh, with regularity. And when you can do that, you're never out of a game and you're always close to putting a team away if a game's tied and you go on a 15 to 2 run i mean that's a big deal so i think health's probably going to be the biggest key and it often is in the nba if this team can stay healthy i don't see why they can't hang in and and compete with anybody in the eastern conference and then if you say the eastern conference i mean there this is a big story this season is how good is the east compared to the west i mean i don't think you can all automatically just say well you can compete in the East because the East, top to bottom to me, is as good or better than the West outside of, I think, those top two teams in the West. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I I like the way the Pacers have been playing. And one of the things that has, I will say, has also surprised me is how well they've come together here in the first month and a half or so of the season. I thought chemistry would be an issue up until the new year when when the clocks turn, you know, 2016. 
I think they how well they've come together and they seem to fit well with so many new pieces has been very impressive here from the outset. Yeah, you know, I was a little worried. I had a conversation with Chris maybe the first week or prior to the first game. Um, and just some of my observations watching them is that I was I was surprised at how well they got along, but at times I was wondering maybe if they were serious enough without having a guy like David West to maybe, you know, keep everybody in line. I was I just had this weird thought that, you know, maybe they're just having fun and when it's time to get serious, maybe that could be an issue, um, but it hasn't been an issue. And as long as, you know, they are a loose group, they are having fun, um, and they're getting along. Obviously, most teams, if you're going to be successful, um, you're not going to have hard feelings. I mean, there may be a game or two that you'd have to worry about a guy not getting his shots, but as long as you're winning, that's not going to be a problem. And, you know, a guy like Monte Ellis has exceeded all expectations just in terms of being a great fit. I think, I mean, if you take everything off the box score or his stats away, he's just been a good teammate and a good guy and a, a, a fun person to be around. And, you know, I'm not, not to try to, you know, dog on Roy or even David. I mean, I, and I don't put those two in the same category, but maybe especially with Roy, I mean, there are times that, you know, he wasn't in a very good mood. Even you saw it as a media person, but even – you know, behind the scenes, and you, maybe you're walking around on eggshells just a little bit. So um, I think that everybody is getting along. I, something I, I noticed, too, is it's awesome to see a guy like Solomon Hill, the way he's sort of handled his situation this season. And there are new – the two of the closest guys that I see on the team are Solomon and Glenn Robinson the third. And, I mean, you could argue, while now there are games they're both out of the rotation, there are times that – you could look and say, well, maybe GR3 took Solo's minutes. Mm-hmm. But Solo yeah. is teaching Glenn about things. And, and Solo hasn't even been in the league that long. But he had a little more experience. He's been around just a little bit more around this team and this coaching staff. And Solo's really helping Glenn. And that's just a small sampling of, I think, why everything is working for these guys. And it's been amazing what, what he's been able to contribute, talking about GR3, and then following along with the D-League guys like Rakeem Christmas. And Shane, I guess, for the last handful of games, has been out with an injury. But these young guys... You can see why Larry Bird went after them and made a point to sign them to long-term contracts. Yeah, I mean, not having seen or heard from those guys since the season started, it's it's hard to know how they're doing than just following the box score. But um, Rakeem, I think the the relationship with the Mad Ants is proving very beneficial already. I was thinking a little bit when Jordan Hill had his back uh, flare up last Friday that they needed to make a beeline or get get on the phone and get Rakeem here to to be a get some backup minutes because they just don't have that depth in the front court. But they were able to get through it and then. Um, Jordan was healthy and able to contribute on Sunday. So it's really a chance for Rakeem to get extended minutes. And I think while it's good to have him around at practice, maybe this is what he needed um, at this point in his career. And I think I would tend to think that sooner rather than later, you're going to at least see him in a uniform and uh, available if needed, but also learning some of the NBA uh, life a little bit, even as a, as a reserve or practice player. Where the tide turned, I'd say, for, for this team is after Game 3 in the locker room, George Hill was particularly vocal about, hey, this isn't who we are. we got to get back to our defensive principles. Talking about how much the offseason conversation was about the offense, how they wanted to play faster. Larry Bird wanted them to score six to eight more points, and Paul was going to move to the four. But getting back to defense, they're now tied for second in defensive efficiency, and I think that's where the tide turned. Would you agree? I think so, and while you know they were – 
not awful defensively in maybe those early games. It was just the combination of things. Um, you know, Paul has been spectacular since the start of November. Absolutely. And that week, it wasn't vintage Paul. You know, he was turning it over. You could just tell he wasn't comfortable. And at some point, um, everything started clicking. And you can see the difference from this season to last season, if for no other reason than Paul's playing and Paul wasn't playing. So um, I think that's what Frank said after the game. You know, Paul's playing great. That helps. Um, but everybody else is sort of doing their job a little bit better. And the defense is significantly better. So it, it, we're seeing more of the same defense, even though they're running more. And, and the offense is it's fun to watch the evolution of it, and I still think you're going to see even more changes offensively. But the, it's more of an offensive mentality than maybe um, you know the structure of the play calling. Um, it's less play calling, and it's more of you know get up and go. And and when you've got guys like CJ and Paul and George that can hit from outside the arc like that, um, you get the shots up, and then you've got you know people like Lavoy and Jordan crashing uh, for offensive rebounds, getting extra possessions. So. Uh, it, I think it's, it has to be a little bit of what Larry Bird envisioned, maybe not exactly uh, when he made some of these changes, but um, the end result sure works. And the other thing I should have mentioned, at least according to Coach Vogel and a lot of the players, they really didn't stress defense too much. I know you were there during much of throughout training camp. Defense wasn't really hit on as much because of the offensive changes. Yeah, that's accurate to an extent. I mean, it was it was the storyline in terms of interviews and things, and it was more of a focus in practice than the defense was. Um, but I think part of it, too, is just, and I thought this was a pretty interesting comment that Frank had recently, is that Jan Mahinmi may not get enough credit for his rim protection and his defense at the center position. George Hill, Paul George gets a lot of credit for his, his defense, but George Hill, um, his his point guard defense. I mean, you have three guys that are, as in Frank words, among the best at their position defensively. So maybe that was expected that it would just happen, and maybe while they didn't go, you know, talking about the defense as much, it was just a matter of those three guys playing together significant minutes and getting comfortable with how they played. And then you have C.J. and Monte who just need to be able to kind of fit in with those three lockdown guys. So I think it was maybe something that was – was going to come eventually, and it, it just has taken a little bit of time. Um, but, you know, the biggest part to me about the defense is just if you're watching a game, watch C.J. Miles and what he yes. has to go up against on a semi-regular basis with somebody because C.J. is the four. And while he's not going to shut any four down that's five inches taller than him or weighs 50 more pounds than him, he's doing enough to allow everyone else to be disruptive and not to be a liability. There still are some games where it's not working, like against the Bulls, and it, it costs C.J. maybe some of his minutes. But he's not complaining. He's doing exactly what he can, the best he can. And that'll be interesting with the Clippers, a team like the Clippers, of how the Pacers decide to defend them. Yeah, and he deserves a lot of credit, C.J. Miles. Clearly the best quote in the locker room. I know we love dealing with him and getting actual answers with uh, some humor with yeah, him. But he's awesome. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's it's fun to. I try not to take advantage of him because he's so good to always request or you know ask to talk to CJ. Um, but from in, in terms of being a a great guy to be around, to talk to on camera, to talk to off camera, and to. Uh, I mean, never once has he ever, you know, well, all the guys, 
are pretty good on camera. You know, you can tell some that just it's not their favorite thing to do, and I've never felt that one time from C.J. Miles. So uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to. I think I can have favorites now that I uh, work for the team, but uh, clearly C.J. is uh, is up on the list. For Jan Mihimi, it just seemed like his offseason paid off, and it's been fun to see. I don't know if it's to an extent a transformation, but his offensive game looks a little more polished. His jumpers have struggled here in the early going. The free throws obviously still an issue, at least in games, but his overall presence inside, the way he's able to score on the putbacks and then obviously take care of the rebounding and be a presence at the rim, that, that's been mighty, mighty impressive. Yeah, Jan is has, has improved quite a bit, and there were times where his offensive game in the past, you didn't want to see him take a shot. He's knocked down some shots. Um, but really, that's not his, that's not his priority on this team, um, it, to get some putbacks and to defend and, you know, cause deflections and shot block, shots blocked on the other end is his, is his priority. Um, but with a team that, you know, when he's on the court, it's one big, and when, you know, there are only two other bigs on the roster, the other thing that's really important for him is to stay out of foul trouble. So he's got to play smart. He knows he has to, uh, you know, he knows he's a very important part of this team. And, you know, the last couple games have been have been great to see him knock down free throws as well. I know he doesn't really want to talk about it, and he's kind of, it frustrates him at times, maybe when the fouling is a part of it. But I think once he makes one, he wants to be fouled. And we've seen that the last two games that, you know, once he got one to go down, then he didn't miss. And that's where the hack of, the hacking strategy backfire <laughs> yeah. on teams. Yeah. I, I hope this game doesn't last until two in the morning on on Wednesday with with DeAndre Jordan and Jan if both teams implement that strategy. But unlike Jordan, Jan's been knocking them down. Yeah, you're exactly right. Talking to Jan over, the, I think it was Saturday night after the game, he was like, "Yeah, I hope they keep doing it because once they continue to foul, then I can get in a rhythm and gain some confidence because it's all mental." I know we need to wrap up here with you. Last question that I did want to hit on: You've hit all the various arenas now with the team. What's your favorite venue or experience or maybe city? What what games do you circle uh, that you look forward to, regardless of how the team's playing or what have you? Well, I always heard from Chris Denary just talking about when prior to working here the how amazing some of the fans were at Oracle Arena in Golden State and then witnessing it um, two years ago when they weren't quite as good as they have turned out to be and then last year obviously they were on quite a run and and I look forward to going back there just to see the spectacle of everything because they do have among the best fans in the NBA um, every arena sort of has its cool things there are some similarities I will say for those that see games at Bankers Life Fieldhouse that if you took if you step back and look at all of the arenas it's probably one of the most unique because a lot of them have some of the similar characteristics a lot of them you know are hockey you know play hockey and play basketball so they have to be a little bit standard sort of like Staples Center I think it's pretty cool Staples Center in the span of four days seeing it transform from um, you know purple and gold lights out in the in the crowd spotlight on the court and then it's a little bit different when the Clippers play here so this is a very cool arena um, but definitely I enjoy Oracle Arena I think uh, the games in Dallas are pretty fun as well I think Dallas is a great place to visit and also um, just everything about the way they kind of their game production uh, I really enjoy as well so um, it, I've had people ask me that question a lot, and I feel like my answer does change sometimes depending upon where I'm at or what I'm getting ready to <laughs> yeah. do next. Um, in Madison Square Garden, some people don't like it I or don't think it's special. I still think it's cool to be in there as well. So 
um, you know, it's just a blessing to be here, to be on the road, to see the different arenas, and, um, you know, probably should maybe uh, go the Scott Agnes route and start a little bit of a blog and, and offer some of the uh, behind the scenes of the different arenas. Maybe I can work on that in the future. Yeah, I would love that. Chris Denier, a couple of years ago was doing videos, and I don't know why those stopped, probably because he has enough on his plate. But I'm glad to hear that last comment about Dallas. I'm actually headed there tomorrow for a couple of broadcasts, so I look forward to that. JJ, I appreciate all your okay, time Scott. your time here today and, and joining me on the podcast. No problem. Anytime. That's Jeremiah Johnson of Fox Sports Indiana. He's been the sideline reporter, pregame, halftime, postgame host in his second season now. Been with the Fox Sports Indiana crew traveling to all of the games for the last three years now. But I appreciate JJ taking some time in his hotel room in Hollywood between games, the Lakers and the Clippers that the Pacers have out there. I think it's a great trip for anyone on it right now. They're there for five days, just two games. I'm sure they got a day off. I think it was perhaps Monday. Where where Paul George and Joe Young went to Oregon to see their alma maters play against one another. It's those unique experiences, traveling private, first-class bus, you have security, you skip all the lines. That's the way to do it if you can. Are you kidding me? It's been fun to see what this team has ultimately turned into here. Still early in the season, just over a month has gone by, but through 16 games now, 11-5, and five, they've won 11 of their last 13 games and moved all the way up to second in the Eastern Conference, just behind Cleveland one game back. But then spots 2 through 10 have just three games separating them. Should make for an incredibly entertaining season. I think it has already, and it's been fun to watch, especially considering how well the Eastern Conference has done against the Western Conference. JJ made a great point in that the difference isn't so dramatic as it has been the last couple years. Of course, the Western Conference has the 19-0 Golden State Warriors and San Antonio and even Oklahoma City. But then after that, it really drops down, and then you have a, a second tier of teams in the Western Conference. Again, my thanks to Jeremiah Johnson of Fox Sports Indiana for taking the time while out in Los Angeles traveling with the Indiana Pacers on this four-game roadie. The team has been terrific, though. Winners of five straight games, including the first game on this road trip. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast. If you liked it, let me know. If you didn't, let me know. And if you have a couple of questions, maybe a guest, that you'd love for me to have on, send me those at scott at vigilantsports.com or you can send me a tweet at Scott Agnes. And don't forget to subscribe to the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast. Hit it up on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.